across the blue line. Leaves it. Kale McCarr winds, fires, score! Now Rubido, top of the near circle, pass far side, wide open net. What a save made by Philip Grubauer. Just outstanding stuff. I am Grubauer. And Zadorov oh. smash! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yep. What a bone-crushing hit by Nikita Zadorov. And Howard Luck has no idea what day it is, what time zone he's in, and he is slowly making his way towards the bench. Hello and welcome into another episode of Avalanche Talk. That is not our name anymore. Let me start over. <laughs> Hello and welcome <laughs> into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast. Of course, I am your host here, JJ Jeriz, with me as always, Arif Dean. But this one's a special one. We uh, reached into the valves of our phone books and we got a special guest on with us today. That's uh, Chris Johnston of Sportsnet. I'm really excited to have him on. It's not often we have guests, but when we do, we make them really special. So Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to join Hockey Mountain High here. Uh, we really appreciate it. How's it going? It's going well. I'm uh, happy to join you guys and pretty exciting time here. We're just days before camp's opening. Uh, lots going on. Yeah, there definitely is a lot going on. And, you know, we were supposed to start about 20, 25 minutes ago, but we let you take the extra time because news just came out that Zidane Chara of the Boston Bruins is now former Boston Bruin. He's signing with the Washington Capitals. So before we get into the avalanche stuff, let's talk a little bit about that. Give me your thoughts and what exactly has happened with that over the last few hours. Well, it's it's a bit shocking on one hand, I think, just because this is one of those players that's so deeply tied to the organization where he played. You know, I think Boston's still a decent team. You know, sometimes you see someone move on, say like Joe Thornton this offseason, leaving San Jose to sign in Toronto. You know, you almost see those ones coming a little bit more because obviously San Jose's kind of hit a tougher point uh, of where they're at in their development. And, and, you know, he understands he's got so little time left in his career. And this is a little different circumstance. And, you know, Zidane Ochara signed all the way back in 2006 in Boston. He's actually named the captain, which is kind of unusual before he ever played a game for them. And so he played more than 1,100 games for that organization, um, you know, prior to, to now signing in Washington. And so you know, I, I found this to be, you know, well, you always know it's possible. You know, we see lots of players move, move teams. It happens in all sports. It's not new in and of itself. This one kind of caught me a little off guard today. And, and, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense for Chara if, if he was going to leave to to go somewhere you know relatively close to Boston. It allows his family to stay in Boston, but also gives him a chance to chase another Stanley Cup. And uh, you know what a what a strange sight it's going to be. You know, eight games this year between the Bruins and Capitals with him on on the other side of that battle. And that's kind of what I found really interesting. Is I mean, for starters, like you said, the Bruins are still a good team. Uh, they also lost Tory Krug to free agency. They didn't really replace him. Uh, with any kind of a big name, they've lost now Zidane Chara, and he signed in Washington for less than eight hundred thousand. So, I mean, to me, this looks like it's a situation where they just wanted to be—they just wanted to move on. Mike Medano in Dallas, for example, is just one of those situations where, for whatever reason, they didn't want to bring him back. Uh, and I can't really wrap my head around why. Well, and that's a tough question to answer. I mean, I think the easy answer is you know the return to play in the summer didn't look good on his game. You know, Chara. Didn't have a particularly strong performance in the Toronto bubble. Yeah. But to me, there's there's potential mitigating factors there, just the unusual nature of the layoff, his age, you know, maybe not playing in front of fans at, at that point, just how weird that whole experience was. I think the Bruins as a team 
were a team that, you know, they were the best regular season team at the time of the stoppage pretty much. And, and, you know, they, they never really got that, that mojo back for whatever reason when, when they got into the bubble. And so I think it was easy maybe to look around and try to find reasons why, and maybe come to the conclusion your 43 year old defenseman is too old or, or isn't capable of doing it anymore. I think where this is more interesting is I, I just believe that Char is a player, even at this stage of his career, even with, you know, obviously mobility was never a strong point, but it becomes more of an issue. The older he's gotten and, and the questions about how many minutes he can handle and all those things. I mean, he brings so many intangible qualities and, and we say that about a lot of players in the league, but, but I've been around few in my times as a reporter that you can see it with Chara. And, 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 you know, I think he's just played such an important role and having the Bruins be a contender for quite a long period of time through some some changes across their own personnel. And, you know, they're, they're kind of in a new wave here in recent years with with Charlie McAvoy and David Pasternak. Uh, but he was part of the old group and has been, a you know, a link that I think has allowed that organization to really have a long sustained run. And so the fact that they are choosing to, to move on from him and let him go, you know, that's the surprise. Uh, it's not that I think he's an all-star caliber defenseman at this point by any stretch, but, you know, on, on the kind of contracts he's playing on and given what he's meant to the organization, you almost feel like you keep a spot for him until he's he's not ready to play anymore, and that that's not how they chose to handle it. Chris, it's been a really interesting offseason for the old guys, right? I mean, the older free agents, up until last week, there was a handful. We had no idea where they were going to sign, if at all. Um, obviously, it has a lot to do with the salary cap adjustments and, and a lot of financials, but it just seems like the league is naturally and by accident getting younger. I guess what's your take on the older RFAs, older free agents as a whole, and do you see the the league just accidentally getting younger here? Well, it's definitely trending younger, and and you know I think we've seen that over a period of time. I think what's really unique now is just that this this strange time we live in. You know, someone like Zayn Ochara is a perfect example. I mean, he's he's made more money than he's ever going to need. His grandkids' grandkids yeah. are looked after. You know, he doesn't need to go through what let's let's call it as it is. It was a weird finish to the season and it's going to be a weird season ahead. And, and just in terms of, you know, most markets not having fans, all the different protocols that are in place, you know, on, on the road, these these guys basically can't do anything other than go for a walk in the city. They're not allowed to to go out to rat their favorite restaurant in whatever road city or, you know, they're, they're subject to a lot of strange things. And so, you know, the fact that some of these older guys want to play on d- despite those challenges, I think. You know, it says a lot about them because, you know, we saw a player like Matt Niskanen, who's, who's nowhere near as old as Zidane Ochara, chose to walk away from one year of his contract, that, that good money with Philadelphia. He just said, you know what, I've had enough. This is, this is, you know, not not how I want to play out this season. And look, I don't I don't blame anyone who comes to that conclusion. I'm almost more fascinated by these guys like a Joe Thornton or a Zidane Ochara, you know, even Henrik Lundqvist. I know ultimately and unfortunately. Yeah, this heart ailment come up, but he was willing to leave the Rangers and go to Washington himself after, you know, a career, a uh, long and, and successful career in New York. And so, you know, there's still a few of those guys carrying the flag and, and, and playing, but, but certainly it's a tough marketplace for them to earn anywhere near what they used to earn. You know, a lot of those players I just mentioned were, were basically playing for contracts of a million dollars or less contracts that could be buried in the minors and, and wouldn't count against your cap. So, so really no risk for the teams. But these guys still have the love of the game, despite everything they've been through. And, and you know, there's only a few gray beards left. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to feel old myself covering this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really what's been interesting to me about the older guys in the league this year is that it's ultimately become a priority thing is who's going to prioritize playing hockey this season. Uh, the bubble was one thing. But I mean, like you said, Niskanen's not by any means Chara and uh, Joe Thornton old, but he walked away from the game. 
there was a tweet today. I want to say it was Renaud Lavoie to Tevea. I don't know if he was the one that said it. I hope I'm not wrong, but he said that the Canadians were interested in Chara, but he didn't sign there because of the whole border issue and he wanted his family to stay in Boston. So his priority was to stay in within the country and still play the game. Joe Thornton was, you know, was completely fine with uprooting his family to Toronto. Someone like Niskanen was able to walk away or, you know, prioritize walking away. And I think that's just become something that the the older generation has been put into. Because let's face it, if you're Nathan McKinnon, if you're Mitch Marner, if you're one of these young guys, who cares? You just want to play hockey. Even going to the bubble in the summer sucked, but you don't have much else going on. These older guys have been put into a situation where they have to prioritize hockey or personal lives on some level. Uh, and it's just, it's a unique scenario, I guess. It is. And, and look, guys that are playing in Canada, because the, the NHL had some a tougher time getting the governments here to allow these teams to get playing. I mean, I don't know what the exact protocol is, but some of their wives and partners and people they live with have to get tested as well. That was part of the con concessions that were made in order to get the Canadian governments to to sign off on having teams here. So, you know, it's not just impacting you, it's impacting the people you care about in that case uh, and, and live with. Whereas, you know, a lot of the, the younger players you mentioned, you know, maybe aren't, aren't married and are able to, to have a little bit more just sitting at home playing video games type of stuff, you know, different yeah. ways to, to weather this. I mean, um, you know, as I say, I do think it's a very personal decision, but I, I'm, almost amazed by these guys like Charo really doesn't have anything to prove, doesn't have financial incentive. He's just so driven as an athlete. Even when you take away the security of being in Boston and, you know, where he was the captain for so long, he still wants to play as long as his body and, and mind will allow him to. And, and so, um, you know, I, I do think that, that these will be very notably few cases as we go forward. I don't think this is just a pandemic related thing. I, I do believe over time, the league is just going to continue trending younger trending towards, you know, players in their cost controlled years and, and, and less time for these, these older ones. And so I, I probably got extra appreciation for the guys that have done it for 10 or 15 or 20 years or more and, and still have the, the desire and the drive to, to keep doing it. Well, let's take a quick pivot here. I was fun breaking some somewhat recent news and getting your initial take there, but I wanted to get a little bit into just the pandemic as a whole. And, uh, you know, from a journalism standpoint, obviously your life has changed. And from a personal standpoint, we all have the same story, right? I've been hanging at home, watching a lot of Netflix, blah, blah, blah. But what have you made of what your job has become in the last 10 months? And even more importantly, where do you see journalism going after this pandemic? I mean, we've seen so many Zoom calls and it seems like that's starting to become the norm here. Well, it very easily could. And, you know, selfishly, I hope that isn't the case. You know, once we get yeah. to a point where it's it's safe for everyone to be back in, in closer quarters together. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to predict, though. You know, I, I can't say for sure which way this is going you know th there's almost a health and safety aspect to this maybe it's maybe it was never that smart to have us in the dressing room obviously common colds and things run through reporters or, or media people and and you know can get into teams you know i think we're all probably a little bit more aware of the spread of germs and airborne uh type you know issues you know such as the coronavirus and then certainly i was prior to this um you know i, I don't know where it's headed it's, it's been a strange year though i mean it's been as you mentioned, not not too different here on on my end of things. I mean, just the idea of of covering so much of the league from my apartment, you know, in downtown Toronto instead of, you know, being out at at the buildings. You know, I was inside the bubbles in the summer, so I, I was at the games in Toronto and then at the the conference final and Stanley Cup final uh, in in Edmonton. So I, that that was, you know, sort of normal because you're there covering the games, but then there's no fans, there's no time to 
see the players face to face or the people that work for the teams that you know. I mean, it's it's been weird. It's almost the only way to survive it, I think, is try not to focus on how different it is, if it makes sense. I mean, I, I start to reflect on it now and you get asked a question, but you just kind of let the moments wash over you. But, you know, I, I have no doubt that that there will be changes out of this across our lives. And and I would think that that will include, you know, just how we do our jobs and, and maybe we won't be going in the dressing room as much. And, you know, if that's the case, that's going to be my old man moment because when I'm around my younger colleagues like you guys, I'm going to be able to say, man, I remember when I used to just be able to go sit beside this player and we could talk about this and I got to know them because certainly it's a challenge to, you know, gain the trust and things you need to do the job well uh, when you're doing everything on group Zoom calls. It's just, it's just a, it's a necessary evil. I'm not certainly not complaining about it. I recognize there's many more people that are more inconvenienced than, than sports reporters have been, but you know, it's been a, a new wrinkle and a new challenge in, in my job here the last few months. CJ, I literally uprooted my life from Detroit, Michigan to Denver, Colorado, and I got to cover exactly 33 home games in the locker room and one road game. So I'm going to use that as my old man moment too. It's unfortunate, but well, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. Hopefully it doesn't go there. Uh, you know, long term and forever. But I do want to get into that bubble talk. I know you you covered the playoffs. You did probably more hockey games than you've ever done in a 60 day span. You started in Toronto and then you went to Edmonton. I know you said it was weird, but just sort of expand on that. Expand on what it was like to be in an empty arena. How how weird was it to sort of watch hockey without the roar of the fans, especially playoff hockey and Stanley Cup final hockey? How cold were these rings and just the general experience of of covering yeah. those games live? It was insane. It was so strange. It never became normal. I mean, I think yeah. when 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 the play was on and you're just watching the hockey, that was normal. And, and I imagine, you know, for fans at home on TV, that that's the same thing. I mean, you got your announcer there. You, you kind of forget all the things that are different. But everything about the, my days and, and even the time of year, right? I, you know, it's, it gets really warm here in Toronto in August when, when the bubble started. And, you know, you're coming in from you know, like 90 degree Fahrenheit days and you're in this arena for two or three straight games sometimes. I mean, look, it was, it was such a cool experience and a unique career experience for me. You know, it would be physically impossible to attend as many playoff games and any playoffs unless I had time travel at my dis disposal, you know, at times when they're being played in rinks around the, the continent, whereas I was able to, you know, I, I don't have the final total, but it was somewhere in the, the range of 80 games I went to during the, the, the playoffs and the return to play. But, you know, it, it it was it was a grind because of that. I mean, it's like eating ice cream. It's good for the first few days, but eventually yeah. you get a belly if you're eating ice cream every day. It was it was a lot of hockey. It was a lot of hours inside those cold rinks. I was fighting off sickness and, and it was just weird. I mean, it, you were missing the excitement. I mean, that it really struck me, especially when I was in Edmonton. And basically there was a conference final game every single day at the exact same time, uh, six o'clock local. And and then we went into the Stanley Cup final and it was basically every other day, although there was a back to back. But basically every single day I'm walking to the rink at four o'clock. It's like the people in the city that you're you're passing by that they, they didn't even know the Stanley Cup finals being played there. Whereas every single other year that I've covered the cup final, it doesn't matter what city, how big of a hockey market it's viewed to be. I mean, when it gets to the Stanley Cup final and you're walking up to the building a couple hours before the game, I mean, there, there's an excitement, there's a buzz in the air and there was just none of that. And obviously you know, none in the building as we would expect, but it was, it was still a really unique experience. I thought that the players and the staff for the teams, you know, I hope people recognize some of the sacrifices they had to make because they literally lived behind fences for, you know, 80 or 90 days to, to pull that thing off. 
I think it was, you know, we'll probably hear as time goes on and we get a little further from it, some of the individual stories, because I do know some people really had some mental health struggles with just being contained for that long. I mean, I, I at least had a little bit more freedom of movement with what I was able to do. So, you know, that that part didn't affect me in quite the same way. And, you know, I don't think anything was taken away on the ice, to be honest. To me, that's that's a legitimate Stanley Cup win for the Lightning. I think that the players played hard throughout the playoffs. I mean, it was there was a lot of entertaining games. I mean, you guys saw that Avalanche series. I know it didn't go the way most of the, the listeners of this podcast, I'm assuming, wanted, but that was a crazy series with tons of goals yeah. and lead changes. I mean, that it had the excitement of the playoffs, um, you know, in terms of the play, but it, you were just missing all the, the the bonus stuff that, you know, frankly makes my job even more fun. And and so. Uh, I, I hope we don't have that again next year. I, I, I don't actually know what the playoffs are going to look like, but I do think that certainly in the places where you're able to have fans by May and June and July, we're, we're going to have some in the building. And that will be a one-off in terms of just how empty it all ended up feeling. Yeah, and it's crazy to me because, I mean, even watching that series against the Dallas Stars, it I mean, it was a hell of a series. It was so much fun. There was a lot of goals. And it wouldn't hit me, like you were saying, when the game is being played, when it's in action, it just feels like hockey, but then the commercial break or even just, you know, a stoppage in play or something would happen where you start to realize you're not sitting in a press box. You're not, you know, even me as a fan, when I used to go to games, you know, before becoming credentialed, you're not sitting in a buzz with 18, 20,000 other people. It's just this empty rank with everything covered and just, you know, six hockey players on each side. And it's, it was a fascinating, fascinating tournament, and you know it's definitely going to have stories for a while. I mean, we talked about it after, on that podcast after that series about that was Game Seven. If Nemestikov scores that goal in Game Seven in the, the Pepsi, Pepsi Center, Center yep. there's no chance Dallas makes a comeback. And so, you know, I think there was some obvious impacts in, in that sense that you could see. But from your standpoint, Chris, did it did it feel like more of an even playing field, or, or, or do you still kind of feel like yeah. you know one team had an advantage over another? It did feel more even because I, I do think at times the, the way fans influence a playoff series or game, it, you know, I think it's at times when, when you see teams kind of melt down for five minutes and they can't quite get it back, you know, their, their hand back on the rope and get pulling in the right direction. I, I think that it was easier for teams to shrug off, you know, bad moments or, or times when something went wrong, even beyond their control more than the, the momentum swings you see in a playoff series, you know, that, that might not explain what happened with the Av stars. I mean, that, that thing was just crazy. Yeah. You know, obviously the injuries at Colorado and dirt played a, a role in that. And, you know, the, you know, using Hutchinson in those last couple of games and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it was, I, th I do think in general it was probably more even, you know, the, the, the home ice advantage basically was very little advantage. I mean, yeah, you get to control the line matchups, but, you know, I think at, at this day and age, I, I don't really think that was that, that much. And so it was truly neutral ground and, Probably the biggest impact, quite honestly, that I heard from a number of the players I talked to was just not having to travel, you know, the way they do during the playoffs. I think that that was probably a bonus, not that they they love living behind the fence in Edmonton for as long as they had to. But, you know, just, uh, you know, after a game, it's a, a quick commute back to the, the hotel where they were staying. They could, you know, get their, their, their treatment or, you know, get a meal on them and then go to bed. And, and they didn't have to go anywhere. It wasn't getting on a flight and going across the country and you know, especially teams in, in the Western time zones, you know, you play four rounds, depending who you match up against, that can be a lot of travel by the time you get to the cup final, whereas that wasn't a factor this time around. And I think it might be one of the reasons why that the hockey was at a pretty high level, you know, throughout most yeah. of the playoffs. I, I didn't see a whole lot of tail off there. And, and I'm just guessing the guys were felt better rested and were sleeping better. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that it was a little bit harder to shrug off those moments. I mean, the, the Avalanche Star Series kind of took that next level, but you saw it when the Avalanche scored four or five goals in a row that first game with Hutchinson. And even in the earlier games that Dallas was winning, they would score one, two, three stories in a row uh, or three goals in a row. Uh, and the Avalanche just couldn't shrug that off. I mean, the Columbus and Toronto series was a good example of that too, where I believe it was two games in a row where the team went up three, nothing would end up losing uh, because as soon as the other team got momentum, the, 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 the team that was up three, nothing just couldn't shrug it off. So it was, it was very, very interesting, and it was a very fascinating type of hockey. But, I mean, I agree. The level of play was great. Uh, but on that note, the playoffs were weird. The Stanley Cup final was weird. The empty arena, obviously, the celebration. How weird was this offseason? Not just the draft, not just free agency, but this last two months that we've had of just quietness. How has it been for you, somebody who's so in touch, you know, an insider in this league, to not really know what's been going on these last two months until just about a few weeks ago? Well, selfishly, I didn't mind a quiet November because it allowed me to have some downtime, which I hadn't had in a, a long period of time. But even, I mean, even that is weird. I mean, obviously, August in a typical offseason is quiet, but it's not as quiet as November was. I mean, we basically didn't see an unrestricted free agent sign a contract, you know, for six weeks in a row during the offseason. I mean, that's yeah. that's basically unheard of. I mean, usually, obviously, if the, the second or third tier players you know, have to wait into August before they get a deal. But usually those guys do get, you know, one year cheap deals at some point in August and then the PTOs start flowing. I mean, the whole industry just shut down. And and I think, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not even rocket science as to why it happened. I mean, there was some legitimate question for a time there, but whether there would be a season and about how negotiations were going to go and whether this would all work out. And so I think teams just weren't of a mind to make those kind of commitments to be adding to their team until they saw how everything shook out. And, you know, obviously since the, the new season was announced, you know, we, we've seen some of those guys land deals, although basically all the unrestricted free agent deals, again, are all one-year contracts. You know, not a lot of commitment there, but but at least we've started seeing players sign and, you know, a few trades and things like that. But th this was, I mean, this was truly bizarre. I think it only fit in with 2020. Maybe it felt normal given the way everything's gone in, in, your, in each of our lives th this year. But, you know, it was a strange offseason. I think this this next one... Assuming the season goes off the way it's been planned, will be feel a far more normal. Obviously, it's going to start a little bit later because the cup uh, won't be handed out till July, and then we're going to have an expansion draft pretty soon after that happens for Seattle. But I think from that point on, you know, there's going to be more certainty. The CBA is locked in for a number of seasons. You know, we'll be looking ahead to a year where you know more and more teams will be expected to have fans in the building, and I think you know it's going to be a better time to be a free agent next uh, late July and through August than it was, you know, for most of the guys in October, November, December this year. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's, let's get into that next, you know, this upcoming season, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, the 56 games, the, the, the divisional format playing only within your division, it's certainly going to feel a lot more normal. And I think we'll, you know, we'll readjust as fans and as media to it rather quick. Uh, but it's still going to be a little different. But I, I did want to, you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on the season, but there's a very, very interesting you know, this is me nerding out. I was talking to JJ about this on our last podcast episode, but this year, like you said, the cup is going to be awarded July 15. Then we have an expansion draft. Uh, I was looking at the calendar and in a usual calendar year, the start of training camp until the end of the game 82 of the regular season takes about roughly 205 days. This year in 205 days from the start of camp, which for the Avalanche and the Maple Leafs is going to be Sunday, 
from the start of camp until the end of the regular season, playoffs, finals, expansion draft, NHL draft, and the first day of free agency is going to be 205 days. So that's kind of how quick this is all going to be crammed together. So just talk about what this upcoming season is going to be like in terms of just the format, the scheduling, not necessarily the playoffs, but just the regular season. How do you think that's going to go? It's going to be pretty unique. It is, you know, right down to the fact that we're going to see teams play each other multiple times in a row. And, you know, I, I should have looked at the avalanche schedule because I haven't reviewed it since, you know, coming onto your podcast. But, you know, generally league wide, you, you know, you have teams playing at least two games against an opponent every single time they play them, more or less. Some cases it's three games. Sometimes it's home and home and you get four games in a row. I mean, even that is just strange to see in a regular season. I believe LA and Anaheim even have one stretch of five games yeah. in a row against each other, which has never happened, I, I believe, in NHL history in a regular season. So, you know, just the, the scheduling of, of all that will be strange. I mean, some of the positives there, of course, is, is you know, just to harken back what I was saying in the bubble, is that the travel isn't going to be quite as difficult as a result. You know, teams are going to go set up on the road for a couple of days in each city. So it's, it's not as whirlwind. I, I think naturally there's going to be some rivalries built in. I think those games will get built up. Things are going to happen. Someone's going to get hit. Someone's going to get suspended. And then those teams got to play each other five more times after that. I mean, that it's fair to say, even in a league where sort of the violence isn't so much what's being sold compared to the way it was 15 years ago. I mean, I still think that there's going to be, it's going to be a more aggressive regular season than probably what we're used to. And then, you know, just down to the fact that we're not going to see teams play each other as much. I mean, the Avalanche are an intriguing division, right? Two of the other best teams in the league that, that have legitimate Stanley Cup hopes in St. Louis and Vegas are in their division, but we're not going to see them play, say, you know, the, the Boston Bruins or, or whoever's doing well on the east side at all. And so there's going to be no reference point to, to you know, who really is the best team. I mean, there'll certainly be debates about those types of things. But, you know, I think the divisional play in itself will be a little bit unusual. I think it's going to be cool. I, I understand why they're doing it for this year. I don't mind it. I, I don't think you'd want it as a regular feature of the schedule that any team is playing any other given team eight times every season. I think it's probably too much if that's the sort of working rule you have. But under the conditions uh, that, that are needed to play this season, I, I think fans will like it. I think the rivalries would be great. And as you mentioned, it's just going to be more of a sprint. Uh, there's not going to be much time for teams that, that get out of the gate slowly to, to find their way back. You know, I think that there's a real pressure to start the year well, and, and that's challenging because, you know, we're talking about nine, 10-day training camps that feature no exhibition games. Yeah. You know, every team has to have at least one day off during camp. I mean, I mean, I know teams will scrimmage with each other, but, I mean, this is, this is going to be something unlike really anything we've seen before, even though we have seen some shortened seasons in the past in the NHL. And, you know, I think it's going to make for some great entertainment myself. Real quick, we're going to get to St. Louis and Vegas here next, but I just wanted to back up and ask you a quick question. I mean, you as someone who has a lot more sources, I mean, Arif and I are the journalistic equivalent of fourth liners here, so we don't quite have the sources that you have. But with your don't be ears, hard on yourself. <laughs> hey, we're just trying to get pucks deep and go but hard after them, right? We're, we're the kind of fourth liners that are the, you know, the new age NHL fourth liners. We're not forever Patrick Bortolos. We're, you know, like the Tyson Jost that have the potential to maybe one day be a first liner, you know? <laughs> you just need a coach and a GM to believe, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, from our perspective, uh, the the planning and the scheduling and getting ready for the season was all going smoothly until suddenly it hit a dramatic halt. Now, from your point of view, obviously having more sources to talk to and, and, and you know, your foot ears to the ground, um, 
were you at all worried that the season was in jeopardy or did you kind of know that they were going to sort this out once that big news kind of hit? I had my brief moments where I was a little bit worried, but I, I wouldn't say I was terribly concerned. I mean, look, we've all come to kind of accept that there's you know, that an element of this was beyond, you know, a deal that could be struck between owners and players or the league and the players association that, you know, some of this was just going to come down and, and still will come down, frankly. I mean, we're not in the clear yet. It, uh, you know, how things progress with COVID you know how the league can weather that. We've seen other leagues be able to play through it while traveling around, you know, albeit with, you know, some issues like, like the NFL has had this year and having to reschedule games and the like. Um, you know, I think that it's reasonable to expect we'll see something like that in the NHL as well, just because, you know, this, this is still a very real threat. And so, you know, I did have my moments where I guess I was, a little concerned, but, but never too much because, you know, the one thing I detected in my conversations is that, you know, people on both sides of the table really wanted to play and really wanted to find a way to play. And I think understood that, you know, this, this couldn't be the time the league just, just sits it out. I mean, th this is, this is going to be a tough year for a lot of owners. You know, let's make no mistake about it. They're losing more by playing than they would be losing by just waiting until the conditions are better to sell tickets again. But you know, you, you also would be losing by, by allowing too much time to elapse, um, but before your next game and before you're in the public consciousness. So, you know, I did have some, some brief moments of concern or where I probably had too much time to sit around in my apartment and think of doomsday scenarios of what it would mean for my career and all these types of things. But, but in, in all seriousness, I, I wasn't that worried and, and I'm, I'm pleased that they found the solution they did, even getting 56 games, you know, I thought it was maybe going to be more like a 48 game season starting around February 1st. You know, they found a way to get another two weeks in. I think that that every two weeks, the more that the merrier, um, you know, from a selfish standpoint, because the industry needs it. And, and you know, my, my job depends on it. But also, I you know, I want to see these guys play. It's been a long it's been a long wait. Uh, and now that the NFL is winding down. There's just not much to watch on TV right now. Yeah, so looking at the Avalanche's schedule, it looks like in the first 32 days, so January 13 through February 13, they play 16 games and they don't play Vegas. But starting Valentine's Day, they play four straight games against the Golden Knights. So let's start. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm really interested to see how that goes. But let's start with the Golden Knights. So you were talking about the Blues and the Golden Knights. Obviously, those are the two teams along with the Avalanche in this top heavy division that all have Stanley Cup aspirations this year. What do you think of Vegas? Number one, in terms of them being a contender and to follow up, I just, you know, wanted to get your opinion on Vegas's team as a whole these last few years, you know, with all the, with all the guys that they've been shipping out after signing, you know, with the Pacioretty's on the sort of suddenly on the trade market, he's on the trade block or, you know, supposedly he is Marc-Andre Fleury had his whole thing over the summer and Robin Leonard was brought in. Number one, what do you think of Vegas as a contender and their team as a whole? And number two, what do you think of the culture they're they're building there? And do you think that it's 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 going to be a little bit of an issue for free agents in the future? I, I don't actually think I, I I've obviously heard that talk about Vegas and and you know Brian Burke, my colleague at Sportsnet, has has you know been pretty pointed in saying that that he thinks that's going to be an issue there. I I don't share that with them. Yeah. You know, I, I to me, what I look at with Vegas is. That's a, a top five market on most players' list to play in. You got the weather. You have a favorable tax situation. You've got a great owner. You've got a team that that has been a contender literally since the minute it was born into the NHL. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. I mean, that it, it's it's almost hard to explain. But you know, they are all in on trying to win. I mean, I, I think that will still be an appealing destination. 
you know, that being said, they've, they've made some tough decisions and, you know, I don't think that they're alone in this. I, I just think that, that it maybe gets amplified because they were such a feel good story, right? I mean, expansion team that goes on this winning run that, that somehow gets to the Stanley cup final, you know, they looked like they were having so much fun. You know, I was at those games, uh, you know, back when they played Washington in their first year, you know, you, you've got Marc-Andre Fleury kind of face of the franchise type of guy. You have, they called themselves the golden misfits because they were sort of cast offs from other teams, whether it's Jonathan Marchessault or William Carlson, Riley Smith, you know, players that never had gotten the kind of opportunity they found in Vegas and were thriving. And and so because they went from being such a feel good story, I think then when they have to make some of the tougher business decisions, it, it's, it's just jarring because, you know, you, you feel like, Oh, they can do that to them too. Um, so I, I do think that I understand why people might sort of, put all that together and say, well, no one's going to want to play there. I, I think people are going to want to play there just because it's, it's an awesome market and it's, it's a great franchise to, to play for. And frankly, heading into this season, I see them as being a legitimate Stanley cup threat, you know, just as they've been, I mean, they were in the Western conference final last year. Uh, the goals dried up on them. Uh, I, I'm not totally sure why that is. And I think that that's been the object of some, some soul searching internally, whether it's, merely stylistic because certainly they were controlling the shot share in a lot of the, the series they played against Vancouver and then against Dallas. Um, but they, they weren't really producing too much offense and it, it ultimately cost them a chance to, to play for the Stanley cup inside the Edmonton bubble. And so, you know, I think that they're a fascinating team this year. You know, I, I love the Alex Petrangelo signing from the fact that I just think he's a difference making defenseman, but you know, what I do wonder about them is that they have to give up too much, with some of the salary cap moves they had to make to to make it worthwhile, you know, if is trading Nate Schmidt and, and Paul Stastny away for a third and fourth round pick, you know, essentially giving them away because you needed to create the cap room, you know, are are you are you just shifting deck chairs around if you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. you know, I, certainly Petrangelo, I think, gives them a force on the right side of their blue line that they've never had uh, in their brief existence. Like I can understand the appeal of signing him as a free agent, but you know. You do wonder about the overall dynamic there, and so you know, I think that they're going to be one of the most interesting stories just from a national perspective because they have had a little bit of drama. They still have Mark Andre Fleury there after the way things played out with him and Robin Leonard inside the bubble. Uh, Max Pacioretty, those rumors were true. They were absolutely shopping him. They were willing to mm-hmm. trade out assets in order to try to move him. Um, you know, that's cooled off here a little bit the last little while, but you know, it could flare up again. If, if there's an opportunity to move them, I think they want a little bit more salary cap flexibility if they can possibly get it, because right now they're one of the teams that they're very pressed up against the ceiling. You're going to see them play with a 20 man or 21 man active roster in order to stay under that, that, that salary cap ceiling. Uh, it's, it's lessened a little bit, of course, by these taxi squads cause they can carry out the extra players with them. Um, but you know, it's, it's just been a sort of, a, a drama-filled offseason. They've also signed the biggest uh, name free agent, and they're coming off a Western Conference final appearance. So, you know, I, I absolutely think that they should, they're deserving of the, the, the cup aspirations they have and the cup contending status they have. But the, the, there's no guarantee, as we're going to find out, that the teams that have that, you know, are able to deliver on it. Yeah, and that that was always an interesting thing to me about the Petrangelo signing. I mean, if you have a chance to sign a guy who's in the Norris conversation every year, you you take it, no matter what it costs. But at the same time, does it get to a point where it costs too much in terms of Stastny and 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 Nate Schmidt? I mean, the Avalanche, for example, you know, everybody was talking up this big game all summer about Taylor Hall just because it would have been fun to bring a Hart Trophy winner onto a team that has McKinnon and Landeskog and Rantanen, but. Taylor Hall would have cost $8 million, assuming he takes the same deal in Denver. 
the Avalanche ended up adding Brandon Saad and Devon Taves for a combined 9.1. So it's kind of one of those trade-off things is, is it worth it? Uh, is, is one of the fascinating things to me about Vegas because not only did they upgrade Schmidt to Petrangelo, but they cut out a second-line center where now you're sort of putting Cody Glass into the situation where you better be ready. And it kind of, it reminds me of if the Avalanche were sort of throwing, let's say, Alex Newhook into there and saying, hey, be the second-line center on a Stanley Cup contender. And that's that's the biggest question mark that I have with Vegas now is suddenly do they have that forward depth to sort of match up against the Avalanche and the Blues? Exactly. And and look, I think that if they were ever able to move someone like Pacioretty, you might see them exactly. go out and another one. <laughs> try to get it, try to get another center. You know, I think that there's a recognition there that, you know, while the organization is super high on Cody Glass and, and they've seen him play NHL games, I mean, there's usually a learning curve. It's only the very best of the best that step in the league at age 20 or 21 and can handle the assignment of being a center, especially that that's going against the other best players in their division or in the league. And so, you know, I, I do think that there'll be a team that bears watching if they can clear some cap room, but you know, what center they might try to bring in or how they might address that. And, and, you know, maybe glass is up to the task. I mean, it's not impossible. It's just, it's, it's a bit of a bet for a team that's trying to win right now that doesn't have, um, you know, really too many fallback options internally. And that's a premier position too. It's not one that's easy to address in mid season trades or the like. I mean, we don't see a lot of those type of players, you know, end up moving. So, you know, there's probably no perfect team out there. The Avalanche might be the closest to it in terms of just depth everywhere and, and you know, maybe having the fewest question marks. But but certainly that that number two center hole, I think, for Vegas is is one of the few question marks they have. I mean, other than that, really, they have elite players across their lineup. And, and you know, we'll still be asking, though, do they score enough, you know, to, to be a team that, that can play right to the end? And, you know, I, I don't know that we'll get that answer until we see them play another 60 or 70 or 80 games. Yeah, but I mean, what they lack in, in second line center, they make up in basically two starting goalies. And that might be the question mark the Avalanche have. So it's it's going to be interesting to see them two going at it. Yeah, let's, uh, let's take a look at St. Louis a little bit deeper. Obviously, we just talked about Petrangelo leaving and the replacement of Krug. But What's funny about St. Louis to me is the year they did win the cup heading into the playoffs, they weren't exactly the uh, the crowd favorite, right? Not really many people choosing them heading into yeah. that playoffs. And then last year to defend the title, they kind of fall flat on their face, so to speak, and just really were really quite the disappointment. So is this team in fact a contender or are they just kind of, you know, just for radio sake, pretenders? You know, they're... They're, they're the, the the third of the three contenders in that division for me, if that makes sense. I mean, if I'm prioritizing them, I, I think that they are the least likely of the three to, to to do it. You know, what I like about their team is that they play hard, and I think they know how they need to to grind out wins. They they, they grinded out a Stanley Cup in a year where they were at one point last in the league in, in early January in the standings. I mean, obviously they have sort of the heart of a champion. I think they have a a lot of nice pieces, you know, what I wonder about the blues is do they have enough sort of star power, uh, you know, difference makers in, in their lineup. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly might not have that, that label. I think you could argue he's one, especially if you, you saw the way he played uh, two years ago in the playoffs when, when they did win the Stanley cup, but, you know, throughout their lineup, they're, they're kind of missing that element, especially with, you know, the, the year starting with Vladimir Tarasenko out long-term and, and, you know, I'm not sure if or, or when we'll see him, you know, after the shoulder issues that he's had. So, you know, right now, I don't know. I mean, I 
certainly not saying they can't win a cup, but I don't see them being ahead of the Golden Knights or the Avalanche in terms of if, if I was, you know, compiling our rankings on the most likely to do it. Um, but, you know, the fact they've been there before and I think the fact they play right and, and they have a lot of veteran players, I mean, I, they're going to be a very good team. You know, to me, they're locked to make the playoffs. I actually think the Tory Krug signing probably goes below the radar because he, he doesn't have the profile of an Alex Petrangelo. But I, I do think he actually fills a lot of the same, um, you know, attributes that they've lost with Petrangelo leaving. You know, he's a play driving guy. He's produced a lot of points on the Bruins power play over the last number of years. And, and you know, I think he's still got lots of hockey left in him. So, you know, I, I like that move for them. But, you know, I just wonder if they're missing sort of a dynamic quality. And, of course, the question is a net. You know, Bennington uh, had the, the run of his life uh, in, in the last half of two seasons ago and, and through that, that playoffs. And, you know, last year didn't treat him quite as well. And so, you know, they're going to need some goaltending in St. Louis where they, they enter the year with Billy Huso as their backup and Bennington as their number one guy. You know, no team's winning a cup without getting some some strong goaltending. And, and I think St. Louis saw a drop off there last year. Yeah, now the interesting uh, the interesting thing that you just said right there about the goalie situation, Jordan Bennington and and Billy Huso is now their backup goalie. Obviously, the Avalanche have a Grubauer and friends who's who had a good regular season and then kind of injuries plus inconsistent play against the Stars led to ultimately their demise in that high-scoring series. I was wondering what your opinion is on Jordan Bennington because this is a guy that came in that first year. And like JJ was saying, you know, nobody really expected the Blues to go far that year. Granted, in the beginning of the summer when they added Maroon and, and Perron and I believe uh, O'Reilly and I think Chad Johnson was the last guy they added, they were expected to be a contender. Then they fell flat. They fired Yo. They hired... Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Barube. Barube. Thank you. Jeez, it's been so long without hockey. Uh, and then they hired Barube, and and things sort of just turned around for them. Bennington had a heck of a season last year. He wasn't as good, and then when the playoffs came around, he kind of fell flat. What do you think of Jordan Bennington? And do you think he is in fact the Stanley Cup winning goalie, or is he somebody that's just sort of a flash in the pan? I'm not going to say one way or another, you know, because I don't know. I mean, I'll be straight up honest. I, I'm certainly to call me an expert at anything would be loose, but I'm certainly not an expert on goaltenders. And, you know, this is one of the, the stranger stories we've seen in my, my years covering the league. I mean, the, the season, the blues won the Stanley cup, 2018, 19, he was the fifth goalie on their depth chart during that season. Yeah. Like he was, he was nowhere. And it was only through a series of injuries and some other issues. They threw him in and he, he caught lightning in a bottle and, you know, bless him. He, he earned it. He, he was nine twenty seven in the regular season that year and, you know, played them right to game seven, of the Stanley cup final and won the Stanley cup, you know, last year didn't go quite as well. I would say he was somewhere around league average. If you look at some of the underlying metrics for, for goal goalies. So he wasn't awful. Um, but you know, you, you do wonder, do you, do you trust the, the, the sort of small sample size of what he did the one season where everything went well, or, or do you look at a career that's taken him quite a long time to even get to that position and, and, Certainly the blues were pretty open that, you know, they, they didn't even think he had a hope or a prayer when they first put him in there and, and he's run with it. So I think this is a huge year for him personally. I mean, it's the last year of his contract for starters, but also just, you know, in establishing himself of what kind of goal he is. So, you know, I, I can't say with any degree of confidence that he is what we might call a Stanley cup goaltender. Uh, he's won a Stanley cup. He played the games, but yeah. you know, if, if he strikes fear and shooters, if, if he has that rep or, you know, around the league, I, 
I think he still has to earn that to a degree, as strange as it sounds. I mean, he hasn't even played 100 NHL games yet. So um, he's I'm going to have to reserve judgment here. And I think the Blues are reserving judgment, yeah. frankly. I mean, if, if this year doesn't go better, he's probably not back as their number one next season. I think that that's fair to say. And even that's weird because, you know, we're talking about a guy who's, who's still in his 20s and has won a cup for them. But I think that they need to be they need they need to see it a little bit more to, to believe it, too. Yeah, that's understandable. We saved the best for last. Let's get into the avalanche here as we kind of wind down the podcast. A lot of complainers here in Colorado often, and I'm sure, oh, yeah? you, I'm sure <laughs> you get this in a lot of markets, but of course, people, a lot of Avs fans don't think that the avalanche quite get the respect from the East Coast national media, which you happen to be, right? You are East Coast national media. So what is your perception of the avalanche's respect throughout the last years? I mean, obviously now, especially after what Nathan McKinnon did these last playoffs. I think everybody's really awoken to the avalanche being a great team, but it took them a while to kind of get noticed. What, what do you, what do you kind of, I will say before CJ jumps in before Chris jumps in that with Nathan McKinnon there, I think, I think over the last couple of years, uh, they've, t the avalanche have taken notice on the, on the East coast and in Canada in general. And then let's face it. I mean, it helps that Nathan McKinnon is a Canadian star and now they have all these young guys coming in like Kale McCarr and eventually Byram and Newhook. But I do want to get your opinion on that CJ. Well, I mean, it's funny. Perception's an interesting thing. I mean, to me, they were like one of the glamor teams this yeah. year. I mean, I haven't looked around at what everyone's predicting yet. Maybe predictions aren't out, but I, I think you're going to see a ton of people pick the Avalanche as their cup favorite this year, uh, including many on the East Coast. You know, I haven't done my own predictions yet, and so I don't want to say that they'll be my pick, but certainly they're they're in like the very small handful of teams before I've even really looked at it and decided where I want to go with that, that that I would put there. I mean, I to be honest, if they don't run into the crazy injury trouble they do, you know, in the bubble in Edmonton, you know, it wouldn't have surprised me to see them go to the cup final, and maybe they're able to beat Tampa. I think that would have been an amazing series just given the way the teams could match up. And so obviously that's an alternate universe, but you know, I, I I've liked the off season they've had. Uh, I like the solid acquisition. Uh, it's hard not to just continue to sort of forecast bigger and better things for, for Kale McCarr and knowing that they have other young prospects coming that, that we're seeing play at the world junior tournament right now. I mean, I, I, I don't see a ton of holes. I mean, I, I certainly get the goaltending question and you know, I can't even tell you right now. Game one of the of the playoffs, who's who's starting in net one hundred percent for the Avalanche? Got a gun to your head. I mean, yeah, I think you could make a case for either guy based on what you've seen at various points in time. But you know, all that being said, there's no sure things in sports. I think the Avalanche are a sure thing to be a playoff team, to be a contender. And and you know, I've been. It's funny. I know Nathan McKinnon spent his off season or a good chunk of it here in Toronto. I've been hearing a lot of hype around him about him here just the, the workouts he was putting in the last couple of months here you know really got everyone's attention like even nhl guys are talking about what a beast he was and, and how they just think that he's on a mission entering the season so that's good pr you know, for him yeah absolutely. <laughs> well it's true but i mean i i just think you're going to hear more you're going to see more and more love and, and hear more and more love for this team and and you know i think that there's tons of eyeballs on them uh, because, you know, around the league, most most people view them as the most likely to win the Stanley Cup. I mean, lots of things can happen. It's a crazy season. And as we saw, I think injuries played a huge, you know, played a huge role in the result against Dallas in the playoffs in the bubble. But um, if this team is healthy and, and performs up to what we expect, I mean, I, I wouldn't surprise me in the least if they're the ones hoisting the cup in July. Yeah, now you know that's a cool thing about the Avalanche and the way this team is built this season and has been built over the last few years. 
I mean, make no mistake about it. They are top heavy in terms of skill. We have Nathan McKinnon, we have Miko Ranton, we have Gabe Landeskog, Kale McCarr. Well, Landeskog's probably a, a level below that, a notch below that. But in terms of the Avalanche, their structure salary-wise is actually pretty evenly distributed. And that's the reason why I think in the future, uh, you know, in these coming years when they start to have to hand out these bigger deals, it's going to be easy to mitigate because you have guys like Comfer and Donskoy on the third pair making almost $4 million each. You have a Calvert on the, for, uh, on the fourth line, sorry, the third line for those other guys. And on the fourth line, Calvert's making 2.75 and, and Belmar's making almost 2 million. My question is in regards to the avalanche. So on the other end, you have Toronto. Toronto's a very top heavy team in terms of those salary. You have these guys on the third and fourth line, those acquisitions of Spets last year and Thornton this year making league minimum. What do you think of that discrepancy in terms of salary from the Maple Leafs and in terms of the Avalanche, how they're evenly spread out? And which way would you rather go in terms of building a roster? All things being equal, you want it the Avalanche way. I mean, the the, the problem is is no team other than, you know, a couple of these teams that are starting fresh. No, no team gets to start from scratch. And so things evolve out of decisions made and, and you know, teams sort of go through cycles. But I think in a perfect world, you know, you, you'd rather have more of an even spread. I mean, what the, the Maple Leafs are trying to do, I won't say it's completely unprecedented, but they're trying to win in a way, essentially, we, we haven't seen happen during the cap years. I mean, you know, I'm just looking right now on, on cap friendly. I see the abs have 50, a little bit less than 51 million tied up in their 12 forwards that cap friendly has them listed with right now. You know, the Leafs have 42 million tied up in their top four forwards. Jeez, yeah. And, you know, if, if those guys, you know, the, the funny thing is, is those guys have largely performed. I mean, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, like these guys have all had big seasons on those contracts, but it's just hard to win when you have that much money tied up in, in that position, especially because obviously you've got to pay your defenseman and and you got to pay your goaltender if you get a really good one. Now, you know, I think what's interesting in the abs case is that, that this won't last forever, right? I mean, they're in this yeah. window right now to, to have it be this way. You know, Landis Cog needs a new deal next year if, if he's re-signed, you know, I don't know what the plan would be for Brandon Saad. I think it's likely you play out the year and see how things go. Maybe he's a candidate to be resigned, but it might just be a one and done kind of scenario. You know, the fact that you have McKinnon signed for this year plus two more at his deal, I mean that's crazy. It's crazy. I mean that, yeah. that that's never gonna happen, basically. I mean, good for Nate. I like the way he's been open about not being bitter about it, not saying he's trying to, you know get hit the home run the next time or whatever that, that he he's happy where he is and he's you know still paid very well but he's criminally underpaid for where he's at in his career and what he's produced but he agreed to that deal he agreed to a long-term yeah. contract and he hadn't broken out yet uh, quite to the degree certainly that he has now since so um you know i do think all things being equal you would rather have it a little bit more evenly spread and when you get it this way it's a little bit easier to keep it this way i mean even ranton and probably could have pushed for a bit more than he got you, know, you want to build a culture. This is what Boston's done. It's certainly what Tampa did, where all the top guys are taking maybe a little bit less in market value. I mean, they're still getting loaded. They're, they're still doing well. But, but you know, you, you sort of create this internal sort of salary cap situation. I think that that'll be key for the Avalanche as they move along. And, you know, they, they're going to have to pay Kale at some point, too, here, right? I mean, what's he got? One one RFA yeah, year left. He's, he's, he's due this summer as well. This so, year. you know. I, I would think that you're going to see it get a little bit more top heavy because you got players that are deserving of those, those types of deals. But, you know, I think the Avalanche have done a great job of managing their cap, uh, you know, from where they were, you know, I think of that LA all-star game, what was that? 2017. Yeah. I think I remember actually Nate showed up there and he, you know, he, I remember he was cracking jokes, but, yeah. but 
they, it was sort of protecting how frustrated he was. He's like, I bet you're surprised to see a member of the Avalanche at the All Star yeah. game and all that. And just to think in, in, a, in a relatively short amount of time how far this organization's come and the way they've managed the situation, I think, is has, is the reason that they're earning these cutback lids. And, and, you know, I think the good news for them is it's not a one year window. If, if something doesn't go right this year, if, if the goaltending lets them down, if they do run into injury trouble, you know, they're still going to have a lot of hype about them next year and the year after, and probably a few more after that, depending on how things go. Yeah. And in true McKinnon fashion, after making those jokes in 2017, a couple of weeks ago, he said, I guess we're the favorites or whatever, because that's, that's how Nathan McKinnon answers every question. Uh, the question I had regarding the avalanche, like you said, they have that well-distributed money and, you know, that's probably the best way to go. So what do you make of the goalie situation? Because on one end, yes, they don't have a Robin Leonard. They don't have even a Marc-Andre Fleury, who's the number two in Vegas now. They don't have the Carey Price and the Tuka Rask and the Vasilevsky and these kinds of goalies. But on the other end, we've seen teams in the past, like, you know, obviously this is a little bit longer ago, but the Red Wings, when they had this well-built team, they had, a you know, just anybody there, whether it was Osgood, whether it was Manny Legacy for some years, you just need a goalie that's respectable and anti Niemi in Chicago at one point to sort of run the show. Do you think that Grubauer and Francis can do that? And alternative, alternatively, do you think that the biggest issue with them is not necessarily their level of play, but injuries? For sure. You know, I, I definitely think they can do it. And I, I do believe the league as a whole is getting away from the idea of a true number one goalie and yeah. a true backup only plays in a normal season, whatever, 20 starts. You know, I, I think that we're, we're trending far and more towards having two goaltenders that almost alternate or, or what have you, just because of, you know, the work that's been done in terms of, you know, not, not playing goalies back to back and easing workload. And, you know, just the fact too, that you have guys like Bennington who come out of nowhere and win a cup. And in the next year, you're not getting that same level of play. I think it, the level of consistency at that position just doesn't seem to be there for one reason or another, maybe because their performance is tied to a lot of things that happen around them. It's not just what they can control themselves, but you know, I, I do think it's reasonable to to approach things this way. And and I think in Grubauer and Francouz, you know, you, you have two goalies that have played a lot of good games in the NHL and you're only committing, you know, a little bit more than 5 million at that position total. You know, we have goalies in the league making 10 and a half million. And so, you know, the teams like Montreal that pays that to carry price, they have less money to spend elsewhere. Well, guess what? You know, the avalanche have been able to, to allocate those funds to, to going out and signing someone like Devon Taves after the trade or, or being able to bring in a brand inside in the off season. I, I think that again, in a perfect world, this is the sort of way you want to build your team in, in theory. And so I, I don't mind the bet at all. I, I get why there could be some trepidation about it or nervousness. It doesn't feel like a sure thing. You know, these guys aren't the sort of goaltenders that are in the, the conversation for the Vesna trophy each year, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see it work. I mean, you're seeing Carolina try to make it work. I, I like these two goalies better than the two goalies they've got in Carolina, for yeah. example. Yep. And I think the Hurricanes are another smartly run team that are in position here to become potentially a powerhouse in the East, depending on how they continue to build out their program. So, um, you know, I think the Avs are honestly on the cutting edge a little bit with, with where they're going and what they're paying these guys. But, you know, there's still some risk there. But this is sports. There's lots of risks. There's no guarantees. And that's what makes it fun. I want to get to another one of the newest additions for the Avalanche. That's Devon Taves. I mean, us out here in the mountain time zone, we don't get too much time to watch Islander games, so we haven't exactly had our finger on the pulse. I mean, we've seen some highlight videos. We know what we've heard about him, but what do we, what should, what are we to expect here in Colorado from a guy like Devon Taves, seeing as how you've had the opportunity to keep a closer eye on him out there in the East? 
Well, I think the good news is he's not a flashy player, right? I mean, you have guys like Kale McCarr and, and Samuel Gerrard, you know, players that can make sort of more offensive plays and, and things like that. I mean, I think he's a little bit of a safer option, but, you know, he's someone who it's proven out that, that you know, that the play goes in the right direction when he's on the ice. And, and you know, to me, he strikes me as a sort of defenseman that you're not, you're not noticing him too much when he's playing. And that's, and it's probably a compliment in, in his case because of the minutes he played, especially in long Island, you know, he's joining a, a much deeper blue line with the avalanche. And so it'll be interesting to see where his usage trends out, you know, what, what pairing ends up on and that sort of thing. You know, I don't know, you know exactly how, how Jared Bednar plans to use him, but you know, in with by the end in the Islanders, I mean, he was a top pairing guy for them and he was able to handle those minutes on a team that, that went to the Eastern conference final. And, and so I think he's a bit of an understated player, but you know, I think he's, he's what you need. He's a steady guy and he's experienced in the league now. He's at the right age. And, and I think he was, you know, paid the right contract. And so, you know, I think that this is going to be a home run of, of, you know, a signing for, for the avalanche, you know, and really why they were able to get this deal done is the Islanders were one of the teams that, that had big cap issues this summer and, or this off season, rather this, this fall, I guess it was. And, and, you know, the avalanche took advantage of that and were able to pry them from, from Long Island. I mean, all things being equal, the Islanders would never want to trade Devontae's at this stage of his career, but they just were forced into that move because they, you know, they still have to sign Matthew Barzell and, and Taves himself needed a new contract. And so, you know, they kind of got backed into a corner there. And I think the Avs made a smart decision to pounce on that. And, and you know, I think he'll be a real steadying presence on a blue line that already has some some sort of elite high-end uh, offensive options. All right. So let's t- let's let's uh, take a little bit of a turn here. We're going to start to wind it down because I know you've given us a lot more time than we were expecting you to. And I very much appreciate it, CJ. Uh, I know JJ does as well. Last question I have for you on the Avalanche. Uh, a little over, well, not a little over a year ago. It's been a year and a half now. The Avalanche made a trade for Nazem Kadri for Tyson Berry. Let's not get into the details of that because that's been beaten to the ground for 18 months. What I want to know from you is I've I've seen enough of him over the last year to know that he's a character. What is one story about Nazem Kadri that sticks out to you with your time when you covered him in Toronto? Oh, man. <laughs> Just one. That's <laughs> fine. You should have given me time to think about it. I mean... He was in my career. He's one of the guys like I really ended up kind of rooting for, and not, yeah. not in, uh, not in an unprofessional manner. I mean, there's lots of players I could lump into this category, but he just was so good to the media, so good to deal with, such a popular teammate uh, during his time in Toronto. And you know, I think you're going to see him be at an even better level this season with the Avs because you know I think that that trade, you know, really hit him hard. I, I think it took him some time yeah. to truly feel comfortable and get used to being part of a new team. You know, he was drafted by the Leafs. He's a local guy here in Toronto. You know, he spent his off seasons in Toronto in those years, you know, he, he loved it here and, and, you know, he wasn't looking to get traded. I think now enough time has passed and he sees, you know, what, what's, what's possible there at the avalanche. I, I think that his, his mind has flipped a little bit more. And, and so you'll see him more locked in, but you know, I, I'm having trouble thinking of just one thing, you know, what stands out to me the most though, honestly, is that, you know, Toronto can be a bit of a media circus at times, and especially for him, he was, you know, he was a seventh or eighth overall pick. I don't, he was certainly a high first round pick. He came in with a lot of expectations. He was in the middle of a lot of shit storms here, for lack of a better term. And he never changed the way he was. He was always uh, so gracious with the media, gave us a lot of time, stood in, answered the questions. He never dodged things, you know, whether it was getting suspended in the playoffs and back to back years to where he was. I mean, he stand up and own those decisions. You know, I just, I just found him to be. 
um, you know, really have a really good outlook on life and, and didn't let sort of what was happening on the outside affect what he was doing in his job. And I think that that's easy, much easier said than done. I think if I, if I, if I was a pro athlete, there's a lot of things genetically that got in my way of that, you know, never mind the mind stuff, but I mean, you know, I think that that would be difficult at times is, is being able to shut out what people are writing about you or saying about you or what you're seeing on social media. And, you know, Naz just never seemed bothered by too much. And I think that that's a real bonus and a, and a benefit to him. And man, that guy's competitive. He wants to win. You know, I don't think he's being counted on or will be counted on to score as much in Colorado as he was certainly in his early years in Toronto. And that's that's going to be to his benefit because, you know, he was at his best when he got, say, the Connor McDavid matchup when he was with the Leafs. So he, he liked specific assignments. He liked the spotlight. And I, and I think when you're when you're asking him more to shut down uh, and then obviously contribute a bit of offense, you know, that's probably when he's at his best. And I think as this team evolves with the avalanche that, that you're going to see him used more in that manner. And, I, you know, I think he's going to thrive in it. Yeah, and I mean, we saw the way that he had that he played in the playoffs this year. He was kind of a man on a mission after those two years in Toronto, where he got suspended both years, and kind of felt like he was to blame for for if if not the first year, then at least the second year that the Leafs lost. And he exploded. He scored a lot of game winning goals, and he just he came in every day with the same mindset of of just wanting to be a professional, wanting to sort of you know the ne- the next day is always going to bring something different never never believe that you're you're you've made it until you've actually made it and he's he's had this great uh this great effect on the team where even we've seen the avalanche when they dealt with one of their many many jj if you remember many injuries the avalanche dealt with last year every time one of the big 3 of johnson landeskog or mckinnon were out they stuck the a on kadri's jersey and i think that sort of says a lot about it um, now with that being said, CJ, we're going to wrap Doesn't up have too many bad days, guys, which is a great quality, especially yeah. in a team environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I, I've, I've gotten to talk to him off the record a lot as well. And it, he just seems like a very stand up guy. His, his parents seem really awesome. We've all heard the Brian Burke story. The one I shared with you, JJ, a few weeks ago of, uh, when he drafted Kadri and his dad came up to him and said, if you ever have any troubles with him, punch him in the head, then call me. I, I love the story. I love that because I just feel like he comes from a family that, that just sort of, you know, that, that instills confidence in you from a young age and sort of pushes that positive mindset. And it shows, it shows in him as a person and it shows in him as a player. Uh, but with that being said, for real this time, CJ, we are going to wrap this up. Uh, I just wanted, you know, one final comment from you on, what you do in this, you know, in in this industry, um, you work for Sportsnet. You work in broadcast, uh, hockey night in Canada. You know, you guys have now the television rights in Canada. You have had them for a few years. Uh, just talk a little about a little bit about what it would take for someone like me, and surprisingly, a lot of my listeners to get to somewhere like that. Just because it is a job that many wish they could have, and it is a career that there really isn't a clear path for it. No, there's definitely not. I mean, I, I, I would say obviously you, you hope to treat people right. You hope to work hard and and you know do your best. I, I don't think that there's any magic formula. There's no one route. You know, you can't give someone instructions to follow. Uh, but I do think people are noticing more than you might realize, especially when you're young in this industry. The way you behave on social media, the way you treat your colleagues. Um, you know, it's important to play the long game, uh, but. You know, certainly I feel very fortunate to have had the career I've been able to have. This was my dream since I was a little kid, and it's probably gone even a little bit better than I could have guessed, if I'm being honest. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking to, to get out of it anytime soon, but I, I feel yeah. very lucky to have been able to, to do this for a living. And, 
you know, doing some of the TV stuff. I mean, that, that's an example of something I never really counted on. It just sort of happened over time. And, and so, you know, I would just say you got to you got to sort of be mentally tough. I think that that's probably true in any industry. Uh, there's times that things aren't going to go your way or maybe, you know, you lose your job or, you know, one door closes. But you, you got to keep trying to find the other one that's opening and keep going and believing in yourself. I, mean, I think it's these are sort of general uh, piece of advice that, that would probably serve you well in any industry. But um, media is so unpredictable and, and uh, you're right. I don't, I don't see one way for it to happen, but, um, if I can do it, someone else can, that's why I always view it. I mean, certainly, uh, you, you need some luck along the way and you gotta, you gotta do some things right too. And, uh, this is definitely the luck that we've, you know, we're, we've had today just by having you on the show. And again, I do appreciate it. I'll let JJ sort of close it out for you. So we don't take much of your time. It's, it's past eight o'clock there on the East coast. Thanks a lot, CJ. Let's let's keep in touch this season, even though the Avs and Leafs aren't going to play until maybe later on in the year. But uh, I really do appreciate this. This is this has been like really awesome. As do I, of course. Right on, guys. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, enjoy the season. I'm glad we're going to get one. Thanks. Right guys. on. Thanks again, CJ. Well. So that was Chris Johnson of Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada headlines. I'm not sure how many of you guys listen or uh, read his work regularly, but if you don't follow him on Twitter at reporter Chris, uh, he's up there. He's up there with Elliot Friedman, Bob McKenzie, Darren Dreger. He's one of the big insiders, and he's just one of the best in the game. He's he's really classy and. He's been someone that's been very open to helping younger journalists and helping anybody in every market. It's not just me. It's, you know, he's, he does this everywhere and it just goes to show what he was saying about making it in this is in this industry is you have to be good to your colleagues and just be a good person in general. Yeah. I mean, when, before he joined us, we talked to him real quick and we said, how long do you have for us? He definitely didn't say an hour. We made him stay an hour. He said, I got to eat some dinner at some point. So he put all that aside just for us. And right. Yeah. And he, he, he said, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, whatever you guys have, whatever you guys have, I got to eat dinner at some point. And it's, you know, I'm looking at the clock here It's 622 here in mountain time. It's 822 out in Toronto. And he's been, He's been busy. And like I said earlier in the podcast, we were 20 minutes late to starting this because he had to turn out a, as a Dano Chara story last minute because that's what you do as a journalist. So he still had the time to do this. He's been telling me this for about five months now that he would be willing to come onto the show for me. And it just goes to show what kind of great person he is. I do have another story to, another story to actually share on that is uh, speaking of that Dow series. And I was going to get into this, but you know, like you say, whenever you have any guests on any podcast is we could have done this for hours because there was a ton of questions we didn't get to ask him. But there was that game against the Stars where Michael Hutchinson came in and he won game five, making the putting the avalanche to within a game, making it three to two series after coming in for uh, Grubauer and for Francis. And I went online and I tweeted that I was happy for Hutchinson because when he was in Toronto earlier this season and last year, he really didn't even have a chance to succeed because Mike Babcock did this thing where he kept playing him on the back end of back-to-backs and he didn't really get that good of a chance. And, you know, basically what I was insinuating from the tweet was that Hutchinson, I'm I'm glad to see him see some success. And even the way that he was talking was on Zoom afterward, he was just a happy-go-lucky guy. and He's just a genuine dude. But it was misconstrued on Twitter. When I went back and read it, I could see why. But it was misconstrued on Twitter that I was bashing the Maple Leafs and how they treated Hutchinson in the media and in, in, in the fan base and the coaching staff, which wasn't exactly what I was trying to say. I was just saying that I'm happy for a guy that hasn't seen much success recently in the NHL to finally see that success. Well, I tweeted this late night after the Avalanche game, went to sleep, woke up. I guess the Eastern time zone woke up before me. 
uh, Toronto's fan base got a hold of it and I, I got eaten alive. It was a shitstorm, as he likes to say, because people were telling me that I had no right saying this about the Maple Leafs, about their fans, about their, their coaches and the media there. And, you know, I responded to a couple of them, not necessarily in an aggressive way, because the last thing I'm ever going to do is get aggressive on Twitter with anybody. Um, but lo and behold, I hadn't talked to CJ in months at that point. And he, you know, slides into my DMs on Twitter and just says, hey, you know, this is what I think about what's happening right now. Gave me some advice on how to deal with it and said, don't sweat it. This stuff happens all the time and just sort of told me to keep my head up and to sort of get through it. And it was just an excellent, you know, showing of the type of person he is, the type of mentor, the type of human he is in general. Yeah, he's a great guy. No it's lie. Simply, simply no other way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I... I I'll be honest. I don't follow Sportsnet, right? I'm in America. Yeah. I watch Absolutely. NHL yeah. Network. I watch NBC. Yeah. So my knowledge of Chris isn't that expansive. But what I do know just from this conversation is how nice of a guy he obviously is just because he spent a lot of time with us. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're more of a black and white podcast, right? We don't do too many jokes. We don't have too yeah. many, you know, outside We need to do things. more of that. We don't get off topic. It's yeah. a, we, we like hockey, so we're yeah. here to talk hockey. We're not we're here to talk X, Y, Z. Um, and so, you know, for that for that reason, we probably on, from his end, was probably a little bit vanilla, but he's, you know, he stuck with us, answered every question with a, a lot of heart. You know what I mean? He yeah. really efforted every single question. So I obviously loved having him on. Um, so nice pull to the uh, booking department on that one. Yeah, Ryan Bolding's got nothing on this guy, you know? <laughs> Although I will say we got to talk to Bolding about getting Greg Wyshynski because that would be somebody to crack jokes with. Uh, but yeah, I mean, CJ's a hell of a dude. That was a heck of an interview. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, someday in the future, hopefully I'll be able to pay it forward to younger journalists because why the hell not, man? If a 25-year-old ever calls me when I'm, you know, in my 40s or 50s or whatever it may be and says, hey, let's talk hockey, you know I'm not going to pass up the opportunity. We're nerds here. We love to talk about hockey, about the avalanche, and I just geek out about this stuff. And and it's it's nice to be able to look up to guys like that. But enough with that. I will say that we are getting right there. The calendar flips to 2021 in less than 48 hours. Uh, yes, today's the 30th. Next time we record a podcast, Ab will be in training camp. They will be in training camp. We are going to attend training camp on Sunday. It's going to be at Family Sports Center. I believe we haven't gotten confirmation of that yet. However, we are going to record a podcast right after that. Training camp is going to begin 10 days after that as the start of the regular season. And I'm going to say again what I said on the podcast last year. In 200 days this year, we are going to go through training camp, the regular season, the playoffs, the Stanley Cup final, uh, NHL draft and expansion draft, and free agency. So buckle up and get ready. This is going to be a hell of a ride. Right. And it all started off with Chris Johnston. So, and it all started off with CJ. Thanks for hanging out with us on this podcast. If you made it this far, bless your bless heart. Your this really hearts. was a, a special one, though, yeah. for us. So, you know, feel free to reach out to Chris and even let him know how much you enjoyed it and how much you enjoy hanging out with us and, and uh, on this podcast, which is the Hockey Mountain High podcast, by the way. I think I'm going to leave that, the, the little the thing blooper the I had at the beginning. Oh, that's going to be great. I'm leaving it. it. I'm Let's leaving. do it. All right. Well, anyway, hockey's for everyone, and we out you.